So uh, I shared with you that we were going to have a guest speaker today, uh, and I would, had the privilege to hear him first service, and I actually heard him before. It was a different message uh, this time. Totally blessed by him. I met him a few years back, I think in 07, uh, when we had just moved to the Lavery Court uh, facility, and we had done an Easter outreach, and um, uh, Chad Williams is his name, and, and he came and spoke and did our, one of our Easter services. It was phenomenal at the Civic Arts Plaza. And uh, Chad uh, is a, a Navy SEAL. He was a Navy SEAL from 04 to uh, 2010. And uh, not just Navy SEAL, but uh, combat. Um, he's, he's been in the thick of it. And um, really blessed by him. Uh, you're going to hear his testimony, a bit of it today. Um, one of the cool things is, um, in, in, I was born and raised in Coronado, so I was around a number of Navy SEALs. And as a lot of you know, my nephew is a SEAL. Uh, SEAL Team 7, Chad actually served in uh, Team 7. He was Team 1, Team 7. And um, we were just back in the corner here, uh, just talking and catching up. He's a wonderful man, loves the Lord, a tremendous testimony, great public speaker. Uh, this is what he does. Uh, this is his calling in life. Uh, it was Pastor Greg Laurie, who is an amazing evangelist, uh, who's the pastor at Harvest Christian Fellowship, that's kind of worked in Chad's life and the connection there and to see what God's done with Chad since him coming to Christ is just uh, spectacular. And we had kind of lost contact with each other and then circled back around recently and I was excited to bring him back and have you hear from him. Um, one last thing, uh, since the last time we'd gotten together, I'm proud to say that uh, what I've learned anyways, he's, his wife is Aubrey. He's uh, got a little girl named Ella and a son named Noah, so he's doing very well um, in the world of family, which is uh, awesome. I think that's a greater accomplishment than becoming a Navy SEAL, quite frankly. Uh, amen? Anyone have kids? <laughs> that's, that's like SEAL team training right there. All right, I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, he's going to share the message, and then I'm going to do communion at the end. Would you welcome with a warm Godspeak uh, welcome Chad Williams. Come on up, buddy. Thank you. So good to be here with you all. And hey, I 1,000% agree with the accomplishment of, you know, being a, a father, you know, being a parent. That's like one of the biggest blessings in life. And, you know, that trident is like, it's rubbish in comparison to that. So just know, you know, you parents out there, you already have that top shelf item. And I got to tell that to guys sometimes because, you know, some of them have regrets that they didn't join the military, didn't pursue, you know, sometimes becoming a SEAL. And they're saying that to me. When their son's right there, right next to him. It's like, dude, you already got a top shelf item right there. You're talking about a lower shelf thing. Uh, so if you guys have your Bibles, you wouldn't mind turning to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is the text I will be reading from in just a little bit here. And uh, as we're turning there, I'll kind of fill you guys in a little bit on what my team was doing on the last deployment I was involved in out in Iraq. Uh, we were given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and there's roadside bombs IEDs and while we're out there we're, we're working with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces it's a group called the ISOF and one of our goals with these guys is to teach them how to do these missions themselves and so we figured the best way to do that is to train them on base but then actually go outside that wire and we'll go into combat side by side with them and if you could imagine a whole deployment going by I'd say pretty good because you know, we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we were coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure if the ice offers ready for us to do that, just to pass that baton off to them and roll out. So we decided for this final op, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up. And we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. So they start from scratch, they're hitting the streets, they're trying to get some source of information, and they get some intel, uh, and this guy tells them about this man that's an Iraqi policeman by day, but at night, back home, he's one of these bomb makers that you're looking for. And it kind of give you an idea of the type of character that makes a suicide vest. You know, oftentimes, these guys aren't very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. In fact, they have such a difficult time finding somebody to raise their hand and volunteer for it. Uh, that oftentimes they can't really find anyone. And so they try and persuade people through different things, or in one instance over there, I think this just really captures how depraved and wicked their minds operate. 
They couldn't find anyone, so they, they found two mentally handicapped women. And they strapped these vests onto them and just shoved them off to a crowded marketplace. And they watched from a distance like cowards as they set it off with the remote, killing these women and obviously so many more. So this kind of gives you an idea of the type of character that we're up against. But the ISOF, they've got this guy's number. You know, they figured out where he lives. They present to us the plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, and grab this guy, an extract. It all checks out, looks pretty good. Uh, but they mentioned one other thing. It was kind of a complaint that they had. They felt that they got shot at more than SEALs do, and they felt they understood why. They thought it had everything to do with the color of uniforms. We're like, really? The mere color of a uniform? It's not the way we shoot, move, communicate. You think it comes down to the uniform that we wear. And they seem convinced of it. And so they're saying, we're wondering if you'd be willing to maybe take off your American-colored uniforms, and we've got ISOF uniforms you guys could put on. So like, all right, uh, let's get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on to get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine. It's not about the uniform anyway. So we get the uniforms on. Well, the funny thing is, is that, you know, my dark complexion, start growing out a little facial hair, then get on one of these Iraqi uniforms. I've got that thing on. I'm walking around. The guys in my team are like, hey, Williams, you really blend in with those guys now, don't you? It's like, I guess I do. On this final op, I'm standing up in the Humvee, that section called the turret. I'm behind the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got my night vision goggles on. I'm looking through my green little world and just kind of going over this mental inventory as I'm thinking about all the things I know about this night firing off of my mind. I know my weapon is headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, how we're going to approach the house, get in, grab him, extract. But one unique thing I know about this operation that makes it different than every other operation, I know this is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'm going to be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, California, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time. They get thrown into the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we're being set up on an ambush. And so as we're pulling up and getting into that most vulnerable position that we can be in, a moment where you're going to be moving from armored vehicles through some open dead space, that's when everything really took off. And we start getting shot at from three different directions, taking what we call effective fire, meaning the rounds are being very effective. And it was the team's ability uh, to work together as a SEAL team, do what we do best, shoot, move, communicate, that led to the obvious conclusion that I came out of that situation alive. Uh, but before I, I, I touch on how that all played out, number one, I want to get into God's word and kind of give you guys a little bit of a backstory on my road to becoming a seal. But most importantly, God's word here. We're going to read about another soldier by the name of Naaman. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm reading from the New King James Version, starting in verse 1. And uh, yeah, this guy, he could have been a seal had there been such a thing during his time, as we'll see. All right, verse 1, it says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus is the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria says, go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Translation, that's the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and he's bringing along some apparel. Let's jump ahead to verse 9 where we find Naaman en route. He's on his way. Verse 9. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana of the far part, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near. 
and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? So how much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now let's pray. Father, we're just thankful for this day. We're thankful for this breath of life, this gift that you've given us. And we're thankful that you have not left us without a witness. You've given us your word. And though this was written for timely issues of the day, we know there's timeless principles that we can pull out of it. Uh, Just as nobody's here by accident, we know from your word that you've appointed our times and our boundaries so that we would perhaps seek you and reach for you, though you're not far from any one of us. And so, Lord, as you're able to have that omnipresence and awareness of everything going on throughout the whole universe, all the way down to even the smallest little atom and molecule, and you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the number of hairs on our heads. Lord, as you're able to just hold all these things together, I just pray that you would speak to us, that you would have something special for each individual here. And speak to us just together as well from your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what Jesus says it would come to do. To convict of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And Lord, I just pray to be open this morning for what your spirit would have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So relevance to this passage coming up shortly. Uh, To kind of give you guys a little bit of an idea of my road to becoming a SEAL, fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, I didn't have any real big plans. And uh, you know that saying, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was my aim at the time. Uh, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do, you know, with my life. I'm just at the local community college and not passing any of my classes, really just because I'm not showing up. I'm ditching, hanging out with friends, you know, going surfing. There's no real accountability. But now the end of the year is coming up. It's time to take the big test finals. And I didn't prepare for it in any way. And it just took that moment, pulling into the school parking lot, when it just, it really hit me. Like, wow, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be. And so I'm thinking, I don't want to live this wasted life. But what am I doing? Like, all my peers are passing me by. I'm not even making it at the local community college. I'm, like, below the average Joe. And so as I'm sitting there in the school parking lot thinking, like, how do I turn this around? I want to do something significant. I want to do something with my life. I'm brainstorming. I think I come up with the perfect plan. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. (laughs) I'm thinking deadliest catch, right? It's by far one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. There's some significance in that, and I almost settled on that when the other idea kind of came floating across my mind. Wait, no, why can't I go join the military? And not just that, I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so right there, school parking lot, I'm about to go take finals. That's where I just make up my mind. I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL. And so my first order of business is this. If I'm going to be a frogman, I don't need to go to school anymore. Started my truck up and took off out of that school parking lot. And I start preparing right away. I'm doing all the running, swimming, pull-ups, push-ups. I got to let my dad know some bad news and good news as I framed it. So I let him know the bad news, not passing any of these classes. Of course, he wants to know. And the good, it's all right, Dad, I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And I remember him kind of looking at me and watching the track record of my life up until this point. Just like any good parent, he's just trying to be the voice of reason here and really paint a clearer picture. So he's like, son, just so you know, joining the military is not like anything you've ever done in the past, like playing ball or skateboarding or going to some local community college. Uh, You know, if you decide that maybe you're over it or perhaps you quit, you don't make it through training, just to be clear, you'll still be in the military. And you're probably going to get a job like chip and paint off some boat in Japan. Well, those words really stuck with my brain there for a while. I was determined I am not going to be that person. And so I know actions speak louder than words. And so I just kind of storm out of there and I continue my preparation. Days go by. He invites me inside one day. 
And uh, they're in his room again, and, and I'm like, what's up? He goes, so you really want to do this? You want to be a SEAL? I'm like, yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, great. Well, I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. I go look over the computer screen, and there's an email. The little one-liner just says, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And I'm like, play? Like, Dad, let me get this straight. You met some guy off the Internet. says he wants to play with me, and you're arranging this all right now. And he's like, no, he's a SEAL, son. I'm like, you can't trust everything someone tells you on the web, Dad. He goes, no, this guy's a SEAL. I'm like, all right, like, I'll go do it. And so there's more of the conversation he had with this man that was on the phone prior to that email that I had no clue about. Uh, I got the backstory months later, but I'll give it to you up front because it's better that way. So on the phone, he's telling him, hey, look, my son wants to be a SEAL. But here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm just wondering if you could do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do, I need you to crush him. Like just bury him. Beat this desire of becoming a seal out of him. And so the guy thought about it for a while. And he shot off his reply in the email, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? So off I go to Oceanside, California, where I'm meeting up with, the, as far as I'm concerned, a Navy SEAL in a beach parking lot. And uh, this guy looked the part, all right? He's like, you Chad? Like, yes, sir. All right, Bubba. I was Bubba from that point forward. Get on over here. And so he's got me like dropped down, doing push-ups. He brought this portable pull-up bar he can hang from anywhere. So I'm doing pull-ups outside the, you know, the, the, the bathrooms at the beach. And next thing I know, he's sending me off on a run out in the wetlands. Says he's going to catch up with me. He just wanted to clean up the gear back at his truck. But 15 minutes into the run, he'll be there to take over and set the pace. And so my only instruction is run away from the ocean out into the wetlands down that trail. 15 minutes into the run. I'm looking at my watch, and I'm not seeing the guy. And so I'm running, looking over my shoulder again, I'm not seeing him. And as I'm running, I start thinking in my head, like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. And I remember thinking of the names of my friends. I still remember the names, Mark and Brian. I'm going to tell them how this Navy SEAL never caught me on the run. I look over my shoulder again, and it is like a scene at a Terminator 2. Do you remember that scene, Arnold Schwarzenegger and like the bad guy they call him the T-1000 could like morph into knife hands and chase down a moving vehicle? That's the Navy SEAL, like coming down this trail with knife hands from me, right? There's nothing I could do to keep that distance. I'm running as fast as I can. He just closes that gap right up, catches up to where I am, and I'm thinking we're just running here. Uh-uh. He gets just ahead of me, and I mean just stops and turns on a dime as I'm greeted by his fist just impaling my stomach, and my feet are lifted. I am clotheslined off the ground, and I still remember that feeling of wind knocked out of me before my back hit the ground, and then just poof of dirt up all around me. And you, you got to put yourself in my shoes. At the moment, remember, at the time, the only intel I had was this. Some guy, my dad met off the internet. Now he's got me on the ground in the wetlands. I'm thinking, child predator, like this is happening right now. And so he's jumping on top of me, and he's ragdolling me, screaming in my face. I feel the spit hitting me, the cheek, the forehead. He's just ragdolling me around. But then I hear these words. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. And there was something about that moment right there where I just realized, like, this is it. This is for real. And I also knew if I quit right now, I'll forever be a quitter. Like, the way I respond in this moment, like it or not, it's going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so I just kind of found it in my mind, like, die before you quit. So he gets up, he says it one more time. He says, three paces. He turns, takes off, and he's showing no mercy. And this went on for a handful of miles down this trail. And I'll tell you what, looking back in hindsight, after having gone through SEAL training, which is arguably by far the most difficult military training, I never went through a more difficult singular workout, I should call it a beatdown session, this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. Uh, but we finally get to this point where he circles up, and he's pacing back and forth, and he's looking at me like he is one of these UFC, like MMHK fighters, just waiting for the referee to say the words, let's get it on. And at the time, I'm like this teenage skater, punk kid. Like, I don't want to project to the Navy SEAL that I'm willing or wanting to fight him at all. So I remember kind of looking down, looking over at him, and just having this self-dialogue. Okay, Chad, don't set this guy off. Uh, no direct eye contact. Just use your peripherals, right? Don't look him in the eyes. And he breaks this really awkward tension by asking me. Simple question. He just says, hey, 
if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? I just told him what came to mind. I said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he gets this big smile on his face, completely changes his demeanor. He goes, great, you want to meet up again for the workout tomorrow? I was kind of thinking then, like, are we going to address the flashback that guy had on the trail? Because that was a little ridiculous. <laughs> and, of course, he wasn't going to let me know what that was all about then. Uh, I found out months later in a lunch conversation with him, my dad. And so apparently he'd gotten on the phone with my dad after that, told him, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to, to make it. I'd like to start working with him. So from that point forward, I began to meet up with this Navy SEAL, Scott Halvinston. And thankfully, it was no longer a beat-down session. It became more of a, a building up. And I moved on in life from just being Bubba, you know, to one day I adopted the name Junior, right? So it's like, all right, Junior, what do you want to do today? You know, we go mountain climbing, kayaking, running, all this. He was just really pouring into me. And Scott is this extraordinary Navy SEAL. I say that because he has all kinds of records. He's a world champion panathlete. He's the fastest Navy SEAL on the SEAL training obstacle course. He's the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. And he was the only man to beat the beast on a TV program back in the early 2000s called Man vs. Beast, where they take wild animals and put them up against human beings in competitions of strength or speed. He got picked to go up against a chimpanzee through an obstacle course, and he pulled ahead of that monkey on monkey bars, okay? So you could YouTube that one, Navy SEAL vs. Chimpanzee. And so you can imagine what it's like to, you know, be in my shoes and get trained by this guy. And so he got me ready. I sign up. I got a date. It's set. He takes an opportunity. He put it to go overseas again. One last time. Says, who knows, Junior, perhaps I could make a difference. Very patriotic. And so the turnaround was quicker for him. He was leaving before I leave. And so he's getting on the phone with me. He's saying, all right, Junior, about to go do this thing. He's referring to going to Iraq. He says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anybody I've ever trained before. And so obviously these next words are going to be very important to me. And he says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And I don't even know how to put it into words. You know, like that just was, like that meant the world to me right there. And so he's reminding me of the timeline, how he's only going to be gone a couple months. It's short. By the time I get down with boot camp, which is about a couple months long, I'll be starting SEAL training. He says, I'll be back and we're going to see you make it through. So, you know, we say our goodbyes. Can't wait to see you when you get back, Scott. So now he's gone. I'm just days away from going. Figure if I can't work out with my mentor in person, the next best thing I could do is do some of these workouts we've done together in the past. I know the program. So I'm up one day, and uh, television's on, and I look over at the TV screen. I can't believe what I see because I see a picture of Scott smiling on TV. And I'm like, what is Scott doing on TV? He's on TV all the time. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's always getting invited in these programs. But what shocked me was like, I thought he was supposed to be off in Iraq right now. Because I'm looking at the smiling image of him, and usually they switch from that, you know, profile shot to, you know, whatever's going on. Uh, that's when I see in the lower third of the screen, Scott's birth date, followed by a dash. It says March 31st, 2004. And before I could, like, process in my mind the meaning of that, I didn't have that opportunity. Because it switches from the smiling image of him to graphic video footage. A vehicle that's engulfed in flames, which is the vehicle that he was in, along with three other Americans... And it cuts to these different scenes how then there he is in the street in Fallujah, Iraq, lifeless body. It's angry Iraqi mob. They've got sticks and rods and they're beating and wailing away trying to mutilate his body and the three others that were with them. And they find rope and wrap it around their legs and hook them up to vehicles and they drag them through the streets of Fallujah. They got to the Euphrates River Bridge and strung them upside down and set their bodies on fire and chanted over and over into the camera, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needless to say, I'll never have the words to describe just like what all the surrounding moments were like. You go through all the emotions. It's one of those things that radically changes you as a human being. You don't go forward the same person from there. And, uh, you know, I think that there is a takeaway. And it has to do with something that we all have in common with each other is adversity. You know, adversity is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing of life that if you've made it this far, you've, you've already faced some adversity. And here's the thing we all have to come to grips with is that it's not over. There will be more. And you never know when it's coming, but it's imminent. There will be more. And so if you have no control over the fact that you are going to get hit with more adversity, and a lot of times it's outside circumstances that you literally have no control over, you don't get to custom pick it. What's the one thing that you do have control over, though? The one thing you do have control over, I heard it, is your response 
It's the way that you respond. And so you are the determiner of whether or not that adversity that hits you like a tsunami is either what we can call a wing or a weight. Will you allow it to be a weight that just destroys you, like just sinks you, leaves you knocked down, never to get back up again? People see what happened and go, oh, they're never resurfacing. Or do you find a wing in there somehow, which is really just a way to get back up on your feet, to rise to the occasion? Or what we call it in the teams, this is part of our seal creed. It's really the opener forged by adversity. Will you fail because of adversity or be forged by adversity? And so I think a lot of it is pretty circumstantial. It's, it's like, what are you going through? Like, I have to come to grips with the fact, and you do too, that, okay, I'm guaranteed to face more. Like, I, my family, we're going to get hit with something. And I don't know what it is, but I know this much. When it happens, I need to be finding that wing. i got to find that wing in there. And so, just an example with Scott, you know, when I lost him, I, I guess you could say I found the wing in the last conversation I had with him. You know, when you lose somebody, you go back in your mind to, like, that last time you were with them, last conversation you had with them, it comes becomes that much more important because that's all you got. And so that's when I remembered. He says, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. That, that's what really began to forge me. That was the wing in the process right there. And I became determined that I'm going to do this. I want to do it for so much more now, though. I had his name written on the inside of my hat. It's a constant reminder. It helped me to dig deep when the going got tough in SEAL training. And I really didn't like where life was at. But I felt like once I become a SEAL, I'll have some type of like closure. You know, I'll be walking in his footsteps and I'll be doing this in honor and memory of him. And so I just really invested all of myself into making it through uh, that training. And uh, I entered a BUDS class 254. And SEAL training is arguably by far some of the most difficult training in the world. Like I said, the numbers speak for themselves. 173 guys started my class. By graduation day, there's only 13 of that original class number still standing there. And that graduation day, this is the moment, right? I mean, going back to that parking lot in the junior college, oh, if I could just become a SEAL, I thought, man, I'd be set. And then doing this for so much more now, like on the line, in memory of Scott, like I remember exactly where I was at, walking out, looking up, thinking, Scott, we did this. I see my family in the background, you know, and friends, they're there. They're going to see this moment where you get pinned with this thing called the trident, which is the insignia. It says, you have done it. You are a SEAL. Welcome to the teams. Welcome to the brotherhood. Not only was this one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life, but strangely, unexpectedly, going forward from there, everything seemed to just start going downhill and circle a drain. And I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time. I mean, I just achieved this thing that I thought was going to be the ultimate. And it was years later I heard these words spoken by a Christian philosopher, Robbie Zacharias. I thought, finally, I have words that describe what I experienced he says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. One of the loneliest moments a man or a woman will ever experience when you've achieved that which you thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets you down. What he's referring to right there is something I believe every man and woman in this room is familiar with, at least to some degree. It's that human condition. That whole idea that the grass is always greener over there on the other side, Never really quite fully satisfied where we're at. What do you want? I just need a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief that if I could just hit this target, which is my ideal, then I'll be satisfied. As though some ideal really exists out there that you could just really live off of. And so what happens is we set up a goal and we have this achievement like in our crosshairs. And you're, you have this hunger for it. And the hunger leads to some good stuff. It leads to the hard work, the drive, determination, and discipline. And then you finally get there. Have you ever achieved? You eat up that moment. You are satisfied just like you thought you would be. But what happens? The satisfaction didn't last like you thought it would. And so what do you do? You don't panic here. You just kind of step back for a moment. You put on your thinking cap. And after a little introspect, you realize, ah, I know what it is. The reason this didn't give me lasting fulfillment, it's simple. I didn't go for something big enough. If I really want it to last, I need to raise the bar. I need to go to that next rung of the ladder. And so that's what we do. We raise the bar. We check up the mountain a little bit higher. And now we got that new one in our crosshairs we're thirsting after. Oh, you put in all that hard work. You get there. You drink it up. And this is the one. You're satisfied. But what happens? It's like a vicious cycle. You just get hungry and thirsty all over again. And seemingly there just is no end. But that's the catch. 
You see, there is an end point, and that is the whole point to that quote. Here's the big question. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, oh, I know what I'll do. Let's go to the next rung of the ladder. You can't do that this time. Why? Because you're at the last rung of the ladder. You can't say, well, I'll just go up from here. Why? Because you're at the peak of the mountain. There's no more elevation to climb, but far worse than all the previous times before because you have no next to turn to. That's where you get those words. And this isn't something that's unique to me in any way. I've spoken to plenty of SEALs that, you know, in private conversations, we'll talk about this sort of thing, but it's not something you share with people. And you see it in the lives of professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars. They have everything the world has to offer. They have the ideal. They are the American idol. They've got all the fortune. They've got the fame. And what do you see going on in their lives? It's a constant drama. We're reading or watching. They're destroying their own lives with drugs and alcohol. They have the dream jobs getting to go to parts unknown. Like who wouldn't trade to be in that situation? Taking his own life. And we're like, why? It doesn't make any sense to us. Well, maybe having all that the world has to offer isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. We hate to believe that. You know, we, we really we, we believe in this pursuit of happiness as if, you know, this ideal can't be achieved. But I think Jesus framed it pretty well. When he says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? And so I guess you could say for me becoming a seal, that was my version of gaining the whole world. My problem, my soul was not oriented correctly at the time. I didn't have a right relationship with the maker. And I didn't go on some soul-searching mission after that either. I just, I'm on a team, and I kind of think that's it. Like, really, like, that's it to life? Like, man, it's kind of bland, you know? Really thought there might have been more. But if anything, to look forward to, going overseas, maybe getting a little revenge for Scott. Uh, but that's not a very good fuel to live off of right there. And so, since I felt like I just didn't feel anymore, what was it that at least made me feel for a little bit? Well, that was to, in the off time, go out, drink, cut loose with the guys, the whole work hard, play hard mentality. That stimulated me. Uh, but of course, it just leads to so much foolishness, right? Just a lot of things that you do that you think that you could laugh about, when in reality, it's just personal robbery. And, you know, everything really came to a head one night, put the family through a big scare after a night of drinking and blacking out and doing a lot of stupid things. And uh, they're confronting me. They're telling me, we love you, but you're not welcome at our home anymore. Don't come here. You know, we're done with it. And so it was some good, tough love. And I decide, all right, I own one. I thought I'd kind of play my cards here a little bit because I actually had a keg of beer that was stashed in their garage that I'd stolen with some friends from a beer fest out in Orange Circle. So I'm like, I need to get to that keg. So I was like, all right. I could tell my dad's pretty serious about not letting me inside. So I tell him, you guys are going to go to some church thing tonight, right? They're like, yeah. I'll go with you. You will? Like, yeah, let's go. My whole thinking was, I could suffer through it. I haven't been to church in a while, but, you know, I'll punch my card in, and this thing will be over by, like, 9 o'clock at night. I don't even plan on drinking until, like, probably, like, 10 or 11 with the friends. We'll get back home, and I'll fall off their radar as they fall asleep, and then I'll grab that keg, and off I go. It's a win-win situation. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll go. They're blown away. Oh, he will. And so I didn't have any real pure motives. So we go, March 14, 2007. There's a man speaking there that night by the name of Greg Laurie. And he opens up to a passage, 2 Kings chapter 5, what we just read. And so now let's circle back and take a look at Naaman's life one more time. So Naaman, here he is, this commander, right? He's had all this success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him. He's highly regarded. Look at his status, his identity, is getting him into places. Even the king wants to hang out with Naaman. He's rubbing shoulders with the king. He's this mighty man of valor. But remember, he's a leper. And how serious is that? Well, it's, let's just say it's a little bit more serious than a case of eczema, right? Uh, Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. It's terminal. And so now I'll kind of circle back and picture Naaman's life this way, if you would. So much for all of that success. So much for that outward man, the armor that he wears, when in reality, that's all just a persona. It's a facade. It's all just an exterior. What's really going on underneath that armor there, Naaman? What's going on underneath your clothing? What's going on is he's a, a dead man walking. He's literally falling apart. 
How quickly? I felt like I really, with that man right there, and I'm sure in a room this size, it's represented here as well. I mean, when you really think about it, who are you on the outside? What kind of armor are you wearing in front of your coworkers, your family members, your friends? Like you really got it together, when in reality, just like Naaman, you're falling apart underneath it all. You're a dead man or woman walking. Well, I found myself relating with this Naaman. And obviously Naaman, he's tried everything he could do, but remember Jesus says nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. The unsung hero in the story is some little girl. Could you imagine if she didn't speak up? She speaks up. She's the evangelist. She says, oh, if only my master were the prophet was in Samaria, for he would heal you of your leprosy. Well, Naaman's desperate, right? He thought he's probably exhausted all other options, but here's maybe one thing he hasn't tried, so he goes to the king. He's got to get permission from the king because it's enemy-occupied territory that he's going to be going to. And so he tells the king, look, thus and thus is the girl who's from the land of Israel. And the king's like, go, I'll send a letter with you. You got my approval. And so he's going. He's bringing his horses and chariots. He's got his entourage with them. This is Naaman, the mighty man of valor. He gets all the way there to the door. It's like, no one here yet, all right? And a servant comes to the door to relay a message. If you just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. Well, Naaman's response, what is it? He becomes furious. I mean, could you imagine he just came all this way with his men, and this guy doesn't even come out to give him the courtesy of a face-to-face conversation. He's disrespected in front of all of his guys. It was a custom of that time. If you're an important person, they come outside to greet you. He should have been waiting there with the red carpet rolled out. And it's, it's almost proportional to how important of a person you are. I mean, think about that time. If a king was coming to a new town, uh, they wouldn't just come outside. They'd be outside the city gates, a welcoming party, bringing them in. And so at the very least, naming this mighty man of valor, the guy should have been there. He should have come out of his place. Instead, he gets treated like a normal, and it infuriates him. And so, what's going on inside of Naaman's head? We don't have to wonder because he's venting out loud, and it's recorded in Scripture. It says he turned, he went away in a rage, and he's saying exactly what his expectation was. I expected this guy to come out of his place, to wave his hand over the place, to call the name of the Lord his God, strike the leprosy away. He thought like some crazy fireworks were going to happen, right? Instead, he just gets treated like this normal. So he's leaving in this rage. And if he keeps going that way, he's going to die in his leprosy. Here's the cool thing, is that Naaman was surrounded by some men that care about him. And they're not going to let him off the hook quite that easy. In a similar way, I guess you could say, that's how my family got me to church that night. Maybe you're brought to church this morning like this. Or maybe... You're the person that needs to be doing some bringing. And so I'm sure these guys don't know exactly how this works, but they probably know this much. Man, we just need to get our name back in front of that God of Israel and just set back. Something supernatural will take place. And so they're just trying to do what they can do. They don't have like real brilliant words for him. They're just like, come on, Naaman, you know, if this guy uh, would have came out and gave you some big great thing to do, you would have done it. I mean, let's use our imagination. Yeah, that probably is the case. What if the guy did come out and roll out the red carpet, put on a big show? What an honor to have you here, name in the mighty man of valor. All right, if you want to be fixed of your leprosy, have we got a difficult task for you to do, and you're going to achieve it. You're going to earn it, all right? Kick off your shoes. We've got broken glass and a CrossFit exercise for you. If you finish it in time, you know, you will be fixed of your leprosy. Naaman would think about it. He would probably be like, show me where to start. But because it's such a simple thing, just go wash and be clean. What did it seem like to him? A foolish thing. What's really interesting about that is that's exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross in the New Testament. It says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Well, no doubt about it, Naaman here is in a state of perishing. Uh, But something these guys say, somehow God uses it. He could use anything. He could speak through a donkey if he wants to, right? And so Naaman decides, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a go. And I think that he is about to do what is by far the most difficult thing for any one of us to do. He's about to humble himself. He was running off in his pride. That was his real issue. 
even far worse than the leprosy, right? But now he's getting it. In order for me to live, I need to die. I gotta go to my own funeral right now. I gotta crucify this pride. And so as he's changing direction, he's changing a whole lot more than just mere physical direction. I think there's a whole change of heart, attitude, mind, spirit going on as he's making this walk and really getting it now. That armor that would have to go, that's when he's really peeling away what needed to go all that time, pride. And he's walking out into this water in faith. I think you understand, it's not the water's gonna fix you, Naaman. It's that if you go out in faith, the God of Israel will be faithful to you. And he will do the truly difficult, heavy lifting part. And so he dips himself those five, six, seven times, that number of completion. On that seventh time when he comes up, in the literal Hebrew language, here's the picture that's given. He had brand new skin like that of a baby. Could you imagine just the mess of that leprosy being all spotted and blotted and just struck through with it and then brand new skin like that of a baby? This is almost like watching a movie, right? It's like watching Batman. And I used to love to go to the movies, especially like at that time in my life because it's almost like a little escape from just all the clutter and debris of life. Like for a little while, you could just get away from all the drama, the white noise, and you could sit down in a theater, the lights go down, and you could live vicariously through a character. A character that maybe faces some adversity, but then triumphs in the end, and, and it always works out for the hero in the end, just like it works out for Naaman. And then usually at this point, their credits roll, and then the lights come back on. And now it's no longer time to live vicariously through this character. Now it's time to go back outside and go face reality again. Well, I want to make a point that the credits don't roll right there. That just as God provided a way out for Naaman, he's provided a way out for you and I as well. And it doesn't come in the form of dipping yourself into some water. It comes in the form of God dipping his son down into the world on a rescue mission. That's Jesus. And he lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. That leprosy in the Old Testament is a picture of something going on in our lives. It's a picture of our sin. Spiritually speaking, we are lepers. We are spotted and blotted and blemished in our sin. And we can't get it off ourselves, just like Naaman couldn't get that leprosy off himself. But remember this Jesus, he was holy and pure without sin, and then he goes to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? I actually ask people on the street all the time, why do you think Jesus went to the cross? Here's the crazy, most common answer. It's like, this is the most common answer. They don't get it. They say, oh, you know, he went to the cross to like be an example for his people. You know, to be like a martyr for the, for the, for the faith. No. It's explicitly declared in the scriptures in the opening of the gospel of Matthew. He went to the cross to save his people from their sin. So here's the picture. Jesus at the cross traded skin with you and I. He took our leprosy, our sin, as it were, upon himself, paid the penalty of it in full so that we could be switched and lavished with God's grace and his mercy. Not only does he pay the penalty of our sin in full at the cross, this next part is very significant and it can't be left out. He rises again from the dead. That is significant for a myriad of reasons. But here's a couple of them. Number one, he defeats the power of death. Number two, and number three, God vindicates him and validates him. If you think about it, theologically, I think we understand why Jesus went to the cross now, to save his people from their sin. But historically, why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he was accused of blasphemy. They said, you being a man, make yourself to be God. And they didn't believe he was. And so they wanted to crucify him. That's why the crowds chanted, crucify him. But God vindicated him when he rose him from the dead. He, it shows that that was not blasphemy. He truly was who he claimed to be. And that's why I say he validates as well certain claims that he made, all the claims that he made, but very exclusive ones like I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's finger, his stamp of approval, his fingerprint is literally on Jesus. And he declares, because I live, speaking of this resurrected life, you also shall live. But how does that work? It works like this. Remember, Naaman needed to go to his own funeral. He needed to humble himself. Interestingly, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you must deny self. It's repent. 
which is more than just sorry I got caught. It's I'm so sorry I want to change. I'm so sorry I want to disassociate with this old man or woman that I am. That Jesus, just as you were nailed to the cross, nail the old me up there. And as you were buried, bury that old person. And as you rose again new from the grave, I'm asking you for that new life that only you can offer. That brand new skin like that of a baby. The scriptures say, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, that times refreshing may come. So for me, March 14, 2007, I understood the gospel message through this Old Testament passage. And I did what the scriptures say to do. And I experienced what the scriptures declare. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Needless to say, that keg of beer, it stayed in that garage. I forgot about it. It was years later. I'm actually visiting my dad, and we're in the garage, and, you know, I hit that thing pretty well, apparently, because he's doing some deep spring cleaning, and we're just talking, and he pulls back this tarp, and there's that keg, and he jumps back and looks at me like, what is this? I'm jumping back like, ho, ho, <laughs> wow. He's like, what is this? I'm like, remember that night we all went to church? I got a funny story to share with you about my original plans for that evening. Uh, but fast forward now, here I am, this active duty Navy SEAL, but... A Christian. And so the, the way I look at it is I'm a seal for Christ. Here's why everything else will continue to let you down if you make it God of your life, because you can't live up to that position. Only God belongs in that throne. Everything else will always be like decaf. It just won't deliver for you, okay? <laughs> but when God is where he belongs, in that preeminent number one position, everything else takes its pro proper category. It takes its place. And you can actually enjoy them in a way that you didn't enjoy them before in the proper spot. And that's where you get in the scriptures. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whether that be a stay-at-home mom, a guy that's working in the corporate world or construction world, whatever it is, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how you're taking the Lord Jesus who carries eternal significance with them and you're infusing him into the temporal things that you do. So now this temporal thing actually bears eternal weight. The actions that you perform really will echo on in eternity. And so fast forward to that final operation. Obviously, I came out of that situation alive. But with the last handful of minutes that I have with you, I want to make a point that it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Let's remember how costly freedom is. Freedom isn't free. It's paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. Let me highlight a couple of names that have paid that ultimate price. One would be Michael Mansour who's a local guy, he's a U.S. Navy SEAL. When he's at a place called Ramadi, Iraq, he's on top of a roof providing cover, protection for other SEALs that are out in the road. When from an unknown location, an insurgent came running up, throws a hand grenade up there on the roof, hits Mikey in the chest, falls in the dark. If you can imagine, he had an exit just a step away. He could have saved himself. That grenade is not his problem. But here's the rub. There's other SEALs on the roof with them, and they did not have time to get up and move off to that exit. And so Mikey, in a split-second selfless act, he just yells out to these guys, grenade, so they have time to take cover, as he threw himself over the top, covering it. And he absorbed the blast. He took that shrapnel, the metal, into his body. And he died. But because of what he did, every single one of these other guys on the roof, they all lived. And so you can mark these words down in history. Greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. You know, my friend Scott, you know, although all these awful things, you know, happened to him, you know, one, one of the last things he ever said to me, Junior, when I go over there, perhaps I can make a difference. And so though he was killed and, and dragged and hung from that bridge, it wasn't in vain. I think that he is a demonstration of those words, greater love. But finally, one more, the one who spoke those words of greater love, this is a quote, and I don't know if you recognize it or not, but I'll tell you who said it. it was Jesus of Nazareth. And he said it at a very unique time prior to the cross. So think about the cross this way. Because I think sometimes we could talk about it a little too casually. Like, I thought one day, why is it that I feel so impacted when I think about guys like Mike Monsoor or Scott? Like, it just, it, it hits me, right? But then sometimes I could just talk about the cross so casually, you know? Jesus died for our sins, and so I, let these guys kind of help you out to maybe get a clear picture, to like let it really resonate with you what the cross is all about. 
if we looked at the cross like through the life of Mike Monsoor, used him like a lens to look through, Jesus at the cross, he didn't absorb the blast of a hand grenade. He absorbed the wrath of our sin upon himself. Why? So that we could live with him in eternity. Remember that grenade was not Mikey's problem. He could have saved himself. It was the other guys that were caught in the crosshairs of that issue. In a very similar way, sin was never Jesus' problem. It's always been us that were caught in the crosshairs of God's judgment. But he covered it for us. As my friend Scott, killed and hung from that Euphrates River Bridge, but ultimately I'd say for freedom's sake, let's never forget that Jesus, he was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From that cross of Calvary so we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. So greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see it in men like Mike Monsoor, Scott Helvenston, and now look to the cross, even greater. That's the proper perspective of that King of kings, that Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for he, speaking of the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to become sin for us that we might, that we might become the righteous of God in him. That's interesting because earlier that quote from Acts chapter 17 where it talks about how I shared in the prayer, he's appointed our times and our boundaries so that we would perhaps, perhaps seek him and reach for him though he's not far from any one of us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in him. Why is the word might there? Why is it perhaps we would seek him and reach for him? Because it's not a default position. It's not just built into life. Not everybody will. In fact, Jesus warns, he says, the majority of the world will not. He says, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many that go in by it. He's talking about hell. Jesus taught about hell quite a bit. You know, I, I don't know, like what people, sometimes they think that Jesus was just all love, love, love. He actually taught on the topic of hell more than any other topic in the gospels. Go fact check that. He was the one that says it would be better for you to pluck out an eye and, and, and that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. He's the one that says it's a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. And why would he talk about it so much? Because he doesn't want anyone going there. Same way that if you have a family member that's caught up in the wrong thing, it's not a scare tactic to let them know. You're not using some cheap trick to say, hey, meth leads to awful consequences. It's out of love you share that with them. In a similar way, it's out of love Jesus is trying to warn of the horrible consequences that come with sin. So it's that we might become the righteous of God in him. That might is there because not everybody will, and it really just comes down to this in the end. Does your love for sin outweigh your love for the creator? If it does, he's not going to force you. He's like, all right then. If you don't want anything to do with him, he'll grant you your wish. He gave you freedom. Or do you finally come to a point where you know, I love him because he first loved me. You're wooed and moved by the things that he has done. God's demonstrated that love towards us. You say, you know what? My love for him outweighs my love for this sin. And I'm ready to repent, turn from it, and place my faith and trust in him as my Savior and my Lord. Saves you from your sin, and as Lord, he's your new assault leader. He's the one that's going to inform you on the battlefield how to shoot, move, communicate through life how you ought to look at things and think about things and go about life.